For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, hey, before we get going, I want to briefly tell you about a service that is sponsoring this week's episode, Mubi. Mubi is a curated online cinema that streams exceptional films from around the globe. They get added, they're up for 30 days, then they're gone. That means there's only 30 movies and they're all great documentaries classics. Uh, it's made my evening movie selection more pleasant, and I think it will for you, too. Try it for 30 days at mubi.com slash longform. Again, mubi.com slash longform. You'll be doing yourself a favor, and you'll be supporting the show. Oh, hey, one more thing before we get going. Uh, since time immemorial, which is to say since early in this podcast, uh, people have been asking us to do a T-shirt. I have been wanting to have a T-shirt. Now we have a T-shirt, but it's only for a very limited time. Uh, you have like three weeks, I think 20 days left to order them. We're going to print a batch. That's it. It might be another 300 episodes more before um, we print them again. So get them while the getting's good. They are at longform.org slash shirt, longform.org slash shirt, 25 bucks. Check them out. I highly recommend picking one up. You will be supporting the show. All right, here's the show. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. They are my co-hosts. Some people think that this show is hosted by one person. Not true. Three different hosts. I kind of don't want to say anything now because I just want you to do the whole intro yourself. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm Max Linsky. <laughs> and me, Evan Ratliff. <laughs> oh, wow, why do I sound like such a dope? <laughs> you know, you're the honey drip with the deep voice. That wasn't dopey. That wasn't dopey at all. You sounded great. Smooth. Aaron, who is on the program this week? Uh, yes, Aaron, who's on the... <laughs> uh, this week I talked to uh, Leon Nafok, um, probably best known uh, recently as the host of Slow Burn, which is a podcast uh, that Slate puts out, which is like, it's kind of an unusual format. I don't know that I've ever seen someone um, approach a story exactly this way. It's about the Watergate hearings, or the whole Watergate saga, but it's about the forgotten stories and like all of the things that we do and don't remember in history. Yeah. I feel like his goal was like to try and capture how it felt to live through that. Right. And the secondary goal, I think I don't want to like put words in people's mouth is to say, if we were living through a Watergate like 
uh, saga right now, how would it feel? Like what, when would you know and what would you remember and what would you not remember? I don't think you're putting words in anyone's mouth. They were okay, laying it hey, on pretty thick. I tread, <laughs> I tread lightly. Uh, Leon is also um, uh, a journalist I've admired for a long time. Uh, he wrote a book, a short book about the rapper Juicebox and has uh, done all kinds of reporting over the years. So a uh, long time coming on this one. Uh, really great conversation. What else is really great? I, I don't know if I could accept that transition, Max. <laughs> it's just like it's just kind of like generic. Um, hey, if you're looking to leave a paper trail behind, why not start an email newsletter? Wow. God, you're good. Uh, they make it easy to send out, uh, you know, a weekly dispatch that tells uh, people who future investigators, et cetera, what you've been up to, who you've been talking to. And uh, best of all, you're not going to pay anything for it until a certain number of people are uh, on the other end of that email. That's right. MailChimp newsletters, you can start one for free and then you only start paying when lots of people are reading it. Uh, it's a great way to get a little uh, brand going, you know? Branding, you guys. Personal branding. branding. Personal branding. Yeah, pretty great. Pretty great. Oh, Max. He's so Max has been very good at these, uh, like the bounce back puns recently. Uh, anyway, thanks to Mailchimp, uh, they help make this show possible. And now here's Aaron with Leon Nafuck. Welcome, Leon Nafuck. Thank you. Uh, you're the host and co-producer of uh, Slow Burn. Uh, for people like who haven't heard it, like how do you describe Slow Burn uh, on an on an airplane? So I say that it is a audio documentary, especially if I'm talking to an older person, which I often had to do when I was trying to convince people to sit for interviews for the yeah. show. I would describe it as an audio documentary uh, rather than a podcast. This is, that's like the most usable tip about podcasting that's ever come on the show. <laughs> yeah, I'm the talking to someone over 80. Documentary. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I say that it's an attempt to try to conjure or capture what it was like to live through this extremely precarious time in our country's history and to try to figure out if living through it felt anything like living through today does. So essentially at the very beginning prompt of this podcast, there's a problem. Or if I was like the person you were pitching this podcast to, I'd be like, but everyone knows how this story ends. That like, was my objection when, when the idea was first Gerald started. Ford became president, like spoiler <laughs> alert, you know, um, from the very beginning, how did you think about structuring a story? Because I think the most popular format for podcasts of this length, it's an eight episode podcast. So you're talking yep. about a pretty extended run um, has been true crime and has at least had some element of suspense, cliffhanger, what comes next. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like I said, I, I had that reservation that you articulated, which was everyone knows the story already. You know, people know the outline of it. They know that there was a burglary involving Nixon's henchmen. They know that Nixon lied about it and yep. they know that. Well, some people know that he was impeached, even though he was actually not impeached. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and other people know that he resigned. And that's about it. And, and we also know, if you're in the same generation as myself and Leon, that your parents, if they were living in America, have at some point described you being like glued to a TV during a series of hearings. Yes. And in some ways, that's the indelible cable movie image of Watergate. If, right. Other than the like uh, helicopter taking Nixon away. <laughs> yeah. So you're you're dealing with all of these Americans cultural memories that are personal 
and that yet you're trying to turn this into a single narrative. Yeah, and so we had to sort of decide what we were going to present as novel and what we were going to present as conventional wisdom. Yeah. Obviously, we wanted to have as much stuff in the show that would feel fresh to the most people. Yeah. And so you asked how we structured it, and I think we started structuring it with an eye towards sort of neutralizing that problem of so many people thinking they already know the story. Yeah. In other words, we wanted to start the series with something that would really send the message to as many people as possible that actually you don't. And so when I came across this story about the wife of the attorney general, John Mitchell, her name was Martha Mitchell, and she was sort of known all across the country in the early 70s as this um, kind of chatty, outspoken, glamorous Southern belle who would go on TV and she would say things she wasn't supposed to say. And she was known as a gossip. She loved talking to reporters. And she was a real beloved figure. Um, I forget the exact percentage, but there was some poll, like a Gallup poll, that blew my mind, which said that something like 75% of Americans knew who she was in 1971. I'm making that number up, but it's in that ballpark. I mean, just the bare fact that there's someone who is that famous who is not at all famous now is kind of interesting. But then, like, when I read the story of what happened to her in the days immediately following the Watergate break-in, I knew that it was where we wanted to start our show. And so what happened briefly is that she was uh, essentially held captive uh, under the watchful eye of an FBI agent and a couple other people. And the FBI agent's job was to like keep her off the phone uh, and to keep her from reading the newspaper because there was a fear that she would recognize the face of one of the five Watergate burglars because he had earlier worked as her driver. And so they just didn't want her to react in the way that she might be expected to react, which is to call up some gossip columnist or some reporter like Helen Thomas at UPI, which is what she ended up doing. Um, basically, she was held captive so that she would not spill her beans. And that that anecdote is sort of like your template for an episode of Slow Burn. Sort of. So that episode, you know, which sort of reaches its climax when the FBI agent who's watching over Martha injects her with a sedative so that she falls asleep instead of continuing to freak out about why she's being uh, held against her will. Uh, it felt like such a wake up call, like to me when I read that. And I hoped that it would serve as a wake-up call to the listeners who might, again, assume that they already know everything there is to know about Watergate. Yeah. Um, it's like this story, this is this incredibly dramatic story involving this extremely famous person has completely been lost to time. Um, you know, and older people correct me and they say, no, no, I still remember her. And this was all, you know, in the papers afterwards and everything like that. But I think to people, you know, in our age cohort, Martha Mitchell doesn't mean anything. And so we just really wanted to established right off the bat that there was a lot of unturned stones that we were going to cover in the show. And, you know, the way in which the episode was different than subsequent episodes was that it was quite narrow and linear and didn't have a lot of, like, conceptual scaffolding around it. It was just sort of like it was very small story. I think we told it in about, you know, under 20 minutes. And so, the you know, the subsequent episodes are a little more tangled and have more sort of thematic layers to them. Well, Watergate is very much a story about period audio, like tape is at the center of the story. And if the auto taping machine is not invented at that point in time, the course of history goes a different place. I imagine that when you're taking these off the beaten track stories like Martha Mitchell, you don't necessarily have access to a lot of period audio to tell the story with. It's not a story like 
the Trump story where everything's on TV, everything's being recorded. Like, did you intentionally try to pick the parts of the Watergate story that you could tell with audio or did you pick the narratives and then figure out how you could find audio that matched them? It was a little bit of both. With Martha, we definitely chose a story first and then felt very lucky to find enough archival footage that would bring her to life. There was yeah. like a interview she did, with, she did with David Frost that we were able to license. And there, yeah. there was one other interview she did where she kind of described her ordeal. And I think if we hadn't found that tape, we probably wouldn't have gone with it. I think we probably would have felt like we needed to find something else to start the show with. Despite the fact that I do make podcasts, I don't think I've ever licensed anything for a podcast. And I know that this has become a big issue with um, some of the big like documentaries that PBS made where they only took out 10 year licenses on some of the um, archival clips and they can't, I think one of the like, eyes on the prize is about the uh, civil rights era. It can never be screened again. Cause it's like a $2 million licensing fee to even show it once or something like that. So for you, like when you're going into the stuff with podcasts, is there like a budget? It's like, we can get this frost interview, but it means in this episode, we can't get this. Absolutely. So I, I, don't deal with that stuff too much. My co-producer, Andrew Parsons, uh, who is a much more experienced podcaster than I am, he knows exactly how to negotiate with like NBC News or yeah. you know the Nixon Library. Like We had to make deals with all these places to try to maximize the amount of material we could use, but not obviously break the bank. But yeah, it's really, really expensive. I was astonished to hear the numbers when I was informed of them. Um, you got to pay for like per second, you know, I mean, depending on your deal, but there's certain deals where you pay, you know, this much money for this many seconds of tape. And it certainly forces you to make choices about what you're going to put on your show. And the other part of the show is you narrating mm -hmm. these incidents and stringing together this audio. Is this your first audio project? Is, your yes. first, is this your first audio documentary, Leon? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. How did you attack narrated history? Um, like, And who is the person, Leon Nafok, what is that person's relationship to slow burn? I basically think I sound like myself on the show. When we were first sort of figuring out the tone that we wanted the show to have, you know, I, I think I experimented with a few different kinds of self-presentation. <laughs> Initially, my instinct was, well, I want to sound like I'm just chatting with my friend, you know, across the bar. Yeah. And I want this to feel conversational and pretty extemporaneous. And I want it to feel natural. And then I did like a scratch take basically of the first script that we wrote in that mode. And it just sounded insane because I just sounded like someone talking to themselves. So you sounded like you were at the bar talking, but you were the only person who was at the bar. Precisely. Yes. Yeah. It was kind of uncanny and just uh, it was off-putting. Did you say. consider <laughs> like bringing in a foil for yourself to discuss with it? Yeah. No, I don't think we ever considered giving me a co-host because, you know, I sort of knew that I wanted to script these pretty meticulously. And I think the fact that we were scripting them pretty meticulously meant that the conversational tone couldn't be yeah. that conversational without sounding, again, kind of weird. Yeah. And so we pretty quickly settled on a style of talking that split the difference between just a chatty stream of consciousness and a delivered oratory or whatever. So I don't know. I like to think that I sound like myself on the show. Um, yeah. I'm sure I'm influenced in my intonations by other radio that I've heard, you know, I think people have noted that every podcast of a certain stripe has, you know, NPR voice. I'm sure I'm not deliberately mimicking them, but I'm sure I've picked up ticks from stuff I've heard. A lot of times, well, I, I just listened to the, the whole run and, uh, 
the elephant in the room is Trump mm-hmm. throughout this entire thing. Mm-hmm. And occasionally you break the uh, fourth wall and like, I think it, you were maybe t- interviewing someone. They were like, yeah. And then Nixon sent this person out like doing press all over the country thinking that he was innocent. And while well, the whole time he yeah, knew he was, that he actually done the book. I don't remember who they were. His, his daughter, Julie, his daughter. Julie Nixon. And yeah. I think you say something like, yeah, you got to wonder if that's going to be like Ivanka or something. Right. And you could have said that like every 90 <laughs> seconds during the podcast. The podcast is ultimately restrained, although not so restrained that it never mentions it. It's clearly part of the conception of the podcast is that you are listening to this now yep. while Trump is president and there are unresolved clouds lingering. Mm-hmm. How did you navigate that and like... That seems like a very delicate issue that could have gone horribly wrong. Yeah, I think you're right. So we we obviously didn't want to be coy about why we were doing the show. Yeah, um, it's late. <laughs> we, we know we wanted to be upfront. Like we're obviously we're interested in this era because yep. it seems like the last time in our nation's history when things were this wild and the news was this rapid fire and the outcome was this uncertain. And that was like the main parallel, honestly, that we were thinking about when we started. It was only like when we started learning the story and research, you know, and kind of identifying the turning points that we kept bumping into these really, really obvious parallels. And we mostly didn't lean into them like on purpose. Right? We didn't chase them. We didn't. There wasn't a quota of yeah. parallels per yeah. episode. You know, I can think of one time when we, you know, when I sort of made a deliberate decision to include something because it had a sort of delightful echo yeah um which i might not have included if it didn't because it yep. wasn't that important it was it was in i think the last episode uh, at one point nixon releases uh thousands of pages of transcripts of the white house tapes like so he had been refusing to release the tapes and he'd been refusing to turn them over to the special prosecutor's office and so he sort of made this gesture of transparency he said i'm gonna release these transcripts and one parallel was that he in his presentation on tv he had this big stack of paper next to him, which reminded me of when Trump's lawyer, I think, was out at a press conference and had a stack of yeah, supposed he like, tax reforms. He tax kind of like ostentatiously put like $25 worth of printer paper <laughs> yeah, out exactly. in front of himself. Yeah. yeah. So there's the use of that prop. And then members of the House Judiciary Committee who had heard some of the actual tapes that those transcripts were based on read the transcripts and were like, wait, there's all of these things missing uh, where you basically say, let's do a crime. Seems like you edited those out. And so they were quite galled by this. They felt it was an un, you know a misrepresentation, and so they leaked it to uh, the press. And so immediately the stories came out about these discrepancies that were quite comical. And immediately, I believe it was Pat Buchanan, one of Nixon's like spokespeople, went out and said, if journalists wanted to really do their jobs, they would investigate where these leaks are coming from. The leaks are the real story. And it's like you know we could have heard this yesterday, sure. You know, and so that's something I included because we could have heard it yesterday. But I think other than that, um, we tried to be restrained because because I honestly think people wanted to hear the show in part because it was a break from Trump, but not such a break that you weren't <laughs> thinking about him. You know, like it was a way to it was a way to sort of process Trump without hearing his name, which is something I feel like a lot of people have fatigue over at this point. Hey, I'm going to pause things here to give a quick word from our sponsor this week, Thermacell. Okay, so Thermacell makes something called Radius, which is the world's first rechargeable zone mosquito repellent. 
Uh, tell me if this description uh, matches anyone in your life. Do you know anyone who cannot come to a picnic with you or won't go hang out in your backyard, can't camp, can't go on certain vacations because they are so afraid of terrible mosquito bites? This person needs a radius. A radius creates a 110 square foot mosquito protection zone that uses heat to disperse a highly effective scent-free repellent. You can use it anywhere in your backyard, pack it for a vacation. It comes with a 100% satisfaction guarantee, a rechargeable battery, and a cartridge that offers up to 40 hours of protection at the push of a button. Highly recommend you check it out. You can go to thermocell.com. And as a listener to this show, if you put in code longform, you will save 20%. Again, thermocell.com, code longform gets you 20% off the radius and you'll be supporting the show. Here is that show. Here I am back with Leon Nafok. The biggest question that um, I had never thought about until I listened to this was this question that was a huge question at the time and is a huge question now, which is, wait, how bad is that? (laughs) Like, there's a... There's a first level question is like, what really happened? But then if you accept, like if you say, hey, there was a burglary, you know, these things happened. There seemed to be a national like uncertainty. And this is kind of what history like uh, sets in iron later Mm -hmm. that this is really bad. Mm -hmm. And at the time it was like, it wasn't so bad. Like I always knew you can make an argument. Nixon wasn't behind the Watergate burglary. But that you can make an argument that like, eh, kind of business as usual, like everyone was involved in burglaries and wiretappings. Right. And I think that's sort of the argument that people made in like the first five months or so. Like the, one of their questions going into the show is, how was it that all of this reporting came out between June of 1972 when the burglary occurred and November of 72 when Nixon was reelected in a landslide, the biggest landslide ever? Yeah. Why didn't people care? Why didn't those stories, you know, those stories that we are quite familiar with from watching All the President's Men, you know, which presents these stories as world changing. In fact, like at the time, they didn't change anything. Like no one really cared. Most people hadn't even heard of Watergate or half, I forget the exact figure, but there was some poll that showed like an incredible proportion of the American public did not even know what Watergate referred to by the time they were going to the voting booth in 1972. And so we tried to figure out what were the, what were the ways in which people rationalized it or how did they justify not being too worked up about it. And one of them that we found was, you know, there was a sort of move to make it kind of contextualize it and say, oh, this is just politics as usual. You know, this is what this is what it's always like. People are bugging each other left and right. Certainly there was a feeling within the Nixon White House that we did not do anything out of the ordinary. This is just how it goes. What was your research project like for this? I mean, it seems like limitless. Like you could probably spend the rest of your life reading about Watergate if you wanted to. Definitely. Yeah. So we we started by trying to kind of gulp down as many sort of omnibus tomes as we could. So like to give us a sense of the arc of the story early on. And so I read J. Anthony Lucas's Nightmare, which is my, probably my favorite book about Watergate. Uh, Stanley Cutler has a sort of definitive history of Watergate called Wars of Watergate. There are a couple others. Fred Emery did one. But there are also documentaries that I watched. There's a great one that sort of tells the story of Watergate through the Dick Cavett show, because Dick Cavett had a lot of the Watergate principles on as guests. Uh, the and... Dick Cavett show seems like it was good watching. Oh, yeah. 
man, he's he's amazing. He's still kicking, right? Dick yeah, I, I interviewed him. He's uh, there's one of the bonus episodes of the show that came out through our subscription service is an extended interview with Dick Cavett, and he's just like a such a pro. It was such a relief to talk to him after like doing a couple interviews that weren't so hot. Yeah, just talk to someone who just knows how to entertain, how to tell a story, how to tell a joke, and uh, he just gave me. One. I feel like, hey, Netflix, what are you doing? Let's, let's, let's reboot the Dick Cavett show. <laughs> this is the right era for it. Um, what was it like? I was actually curious about that because, like, I'll confess, I did not listen to any of the Slate Plus bonus episodes. But as I understand it, you were doing an episode a week and then a bonus episode every week that was for people who are these premium subscribers. And right. I'm always curious about this stuff because this is emerging as a kind of dominant model in the poorest paywall subscription era of media and it seems like it's a creative difficulty where not only are you having to make a great eight episode series you're also having to make like a echo eight episode secondary thing but you can't expect that people who are on the main track have heard anything that's on the other track like what was it like trying to do the whole thing twice like that well so you know it wasn't as hard as you're making it sound because uh, what we did is sort of make the bonus episodes, first of all, a lot less intensive in terms of production. So whereas the actual episodes are, you know, full of archival footage and music and interview clips that we've edited meticulously, and the bonus episodes were a little more kind of basic, right? They usually led with a conversation between me and a co-host where I kind of rambled about some of the facts I learned that didn't make it into the episode. Maybe I would tell some story, like a behind-the-scenes story about an interview that was on the show that might be fun for people who are fans of the show to hear. And then I, we would play like an extended interview that I had done. And sometimes we played an interview that we had done originally for the actual show yeah. and we just used like five seconds of. But then there were other episodes we did specifically for Slate Plus. You know, we did this sort of round table with uh, two brothers and a sister who spent the summer of 73 watching the Watergate hearings and making a scrapbook about it. And it was just this incredible document of, you know, three teenagers doodling, you know, jokes, you know, putting words in John Dean's mouth or uh, cutting out headlines and reacting to them almost like memes or something. And so a friend showed it to me that it was her dad that made this. And so I had her dad come in with his two siblings and uh, talk about it. And so that was something we did specifically for Slate Plus, and it was the last episode. But so, yeah, on the whole, like, they pretty organically materialized because we would inevitably do more reporting than we could use on the show. You described like building this as the like off the beaten track narrative, like the narrative you don't know of Watergate, the forgotten narrative. Yet there is still this burden of telling the the macro narrative of Watergate like this is how the hearing started. This yeah. is like what happened. Um, how did you balance those two and like keep the like main story in mind while you were taking all of these pretty elaborate detours. Yeah, so that was definitely like the biggest sort of structural challenge that we faced with every episode because we wanted we wanted every episode to if not stand alone entirely yeah. so that anyone could listen to it out of context, but we also wanted each episode to advance us in the timeline. Right? Yeah. Uh, which is sort of what you're referring to. Like yeah. we got to tell the actual story because that's why we're here. Yeah. Um and so it was a matter of finding the right character for to be our vehicle in order to tell that part of the story. So, for yep. example, our fourth episode was about the Senate Watergate hearings, which is this, you know, extraordinary spectacle where America was glued to their televisions watching these senators interrogate Nixon's aides. And um, 
that's a public story, right? As you were alluding to earlier, like that's something people generally know that yeah. happened. So our way of sort of telling it in a fresh way was to find two people who no one has ever heard of. Their names are Mary DiOrio and Mark Lackritz. They worked for the Senate Watergate Committee staff. So they were behind the scenes. They weren't on TV. They were investigators. They were doing the investigative work that turned into questions that the senators would then ask of the witnesses. And so they're a married couple. They moved to D.C. like after law school, and she moved reluctantly because she wanted to stay in California. And they spent the summer being a couple uh, working amid history. Uh, her father didn't like the fact that she was there because he was a Nixon supporter, and he thought that you know Mary shouldn't be helping to take down the president. Um, and then when he heard John Dean's testimony, he called her and told her that he'd been wrong to put his hopes in Nixon, and she cried. You know, it's just these like human scale moments that you get when you focus on individuals instead of just trying to sort of tell the broad narrative. You know, you, you our hope is to find people like that for every chunk of the timeline. So you've spent most of your time doing print and digital journalism yeah. is your first foray into audio. How did it go? And how, how was it different? Like what what are the ups, downsides? And how does it feel like having this project out in the world now? People are reacting to it. Uh, it feels great. I mean, I've never had, I've never made anything that has gotten anything close to this level of reaction. And I think the medium has a lot to do with that. I think people connect to this medium in a way that they don't with print pieces, uh, or at least mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think this is a cliche at this point, but people feel very connected to the voice in their ear. Yeah. Uh, and I think that goes a long way. And I think hearing people's voices, not mine, but rather the people we're interviewing, goes a long way towards making the stuff vivid um, in a way you can't quite replicate in print. I definitely had to learn a lot of almost mechanical skills, you know, that I didn't have. I also had to learn how to write for radio, which meant no subordinate clauses. It meant no sentences over a certain length. It meant getting a feel for how long is too long to be talking before you hear something that's not my voice. You really have to be unsparing about cutting out names that aren't essential, subplots that aren't essential, because you're just really fighting every second of the way against people's tendency to drift off and to pay attention to whatever's around them when they're walking their dog or whatever, uh, or they're driving. Um, so you're, I think you're in competition with whatever is around the person. And so therefore you have to, I think there's a thin line between successfully keeping people's attention and being a little thirsty for their attention. So like there's this phrase signposting that people use a lot in podcasting and radio. It means like having a line that announces to the listener what is happening or the significance of what you're about to say or what you've just said. And those can be a little heavy handed compared to like what you might expect of yourself in print, but they're really necessary uh, because people's brains just do need those like little clarifying reminders uh, of where you are. And the other thing I learned, this is, I think this is probably the most interesting thing to me that I learned. You can't really do elegant transitions in radio. Like you don't want elegant transitions because you need to announce, you need the person who's listening to notice that the action is shifting, right? So like, whereas in print, I might be compelled to find like the exact right words so that it feels seamless to go from A to B. In audio, like it's way better to just be like, make it clear that you're now talking about something else. Because if the person has drifted off up to that point, at least they'll click back on and they won't be confused when they tune back in about why they're there. Uh, what was your what was your first gig in um, making things, making media? 
making media. Yeah. Uh, well, out of college, I worked at the New York Observer. Uh, I was a book publishing reporter. How was that? It was awesome. Uh, I think of it very fondly. So book publishing at that time, uh, not on the upswing. No. Uh, in retrospect, yeah, it was a real inflection point. The Kindle was just coming out, which no one really was taking that seriously, or at least I wasn't. I had barely wrote about Amazon, weirdly, even though this was 2007, 2008, 2009. This is really like a dark time. You know, imprints were folding and there were reorganizations at all the major houses that were, you know, shrinking the number of, you know, the number of editors working and people were getting fired all the time. Yeah. And so I could tell that things were in a crisis situation, but I somehow just didn't write that much about the money uh, and how, what it meant that Amazon was killing bookstores and all that. Um, I really focused mostly on individuals who were in these places and what their work was like and what their ambitions were and what they did on a day-to-day basis. Like a lot of my items were book deal items. You know, I would find out that Carl Rove had like sold his book to whoever it was and I would try to find out how much he got paid for it and I would try to find out, you know, who else was trying to bid on it and why he went with who he went with. There was one item I did about Sarah Silverman selling a book and she... There was an auction that HarperCollins won, but there were three different imprints within HarperCollins that wanted the book. And so the money part of the conversation was over because HarperCollins had beaten Penguin and Random House on the money front. And then there was what's called a beauty contest where Sarah Silverman comes in, or I think in this case she was beamed in over a teleconferencing thing, and meets with, you know, the editor who would be working with her. And they try to charm her and convince her that they're the ones to to bring her book to fruition. And um, that's the kind of stuff that I tried to get fun details on, like who said what in, in which meeting, how did the person who won that beauty contest do it? What was your ambition to be involved in that kind of uh, like media industry reporting or was that just the first job that replied? So I came into the Observer without knowing what it was I'd be covering. I'd been an intern there, I think the previous summer or the summer before that. And I'd done some like media reporting. Uh, I feel like it's sort of a natural thing to be curious about when you're that age. Like you, you move to New York and you like want to yeah. know what all these uh, media companies are doing because they're the world that you're trying to join. Yeah, I'm like a lot less interested in media news now than I was. I try to avoid it. I I always like laugh when someone tweets like scoop like this associate editor <laughs> at GQ has moved to an editor position at some other magazines like who gives a shit yeah um, that's I, I, so that said as, as flippant as I sound about the idea of media reporting now like I did buy into I think what was a pretty foundational ethos at the observer which is that it's important to write about these organizations like I think Peter Kaplan who was the editor of the observer at the time believed that I think his quote was like we got to cover the New York Times with the Times covers the State Department because this institution matters. This institution is interesting. It's full of talented, crazy people who are responsible for much of what the world knows about itself, you know? And so it's not frivolous to write about their inner workings. It's not uh, navel-gazing to be interested in that stuff. And so I was always kind of tortured by that. I was like, on the one hand, I totally bought into that. On the other hand, I felt a little self-conscious about being a reporter who's basically writing about his own industry while all other reporters were writing about the world outside. Well, where did you go from there? So, well, I had a couple other jobs at The Observer because after Peter Kaplan left, uh, a new sort of guard of editors came in. And so I briefly wrote about the art world, and then I briefly wrote about the New York City tech scene. And then from there, I got a job in Boston at the Boston Globe 
where I wrote for the Sunday Ideas section. My job there was to basically write the cover story for the section every other week. And the cover stories for the idea section were, you know, two, 3,000 word pieces that either took some new finding or argument from the social sciences and re reported on them as news and kind of dug into their implications. And often they went the other way, right? So there's something in the news and we would try to find academic research that gave us some new insight into it or made us think about it in a different way. And it was a total joy of a job in part because I was learning about a new thing every two weeks. And the number of disciplines I was exposed to, the number of corners of the world that I sort of became acquainted with as a result of that job was really unparalleled. Like I did a story about economics research showing that there are way too many firefighters in our country <laughs> because there's not very many fires and the firefighters are very powerful as a special interest and they are able to marshal resources for fire departments even though the number of fires keeps dropping and dropping and dropping. You know, I did a story on, you know, an economist who had figured out a new way for people who wanted to donate kidneys to donate kidneys. It was a guy named Al Roth, he later won the Nobel Prize. And so there were just, yeah, every week was a new thing. And I was constantly stressed out because I felt like I was a tourist and, uh, you know, all the time. And I felt like a, like a dilettante because I was. Uh, yeah. But I was, my status as a dilettante was aggravated by the fact that I was in interacting with experts, you know, people who devoted their entire lives to something. And I imagine you probably find those people like with like slow burn. I'm guessing your inbox has some like Nixon scholars in it who are like, ah, this is superficial. Blah, like, you know, I really thought I would. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad to say that I don't. I feel like it's been mostly, I mean, obviously I, there, I'm sure there's people out there who have nitpicks about what, what do they call themselves like nixophiles <laughs> Water, i don't know watergatians i don't know if there's a lot of nixon files out there um Nix, nixophobics <laughs> i got a couple of really nice emails from people who are true watergate experts who felt like i didn't make any mistakes yeah um, we didn't have any errors in the show that was something i was really proud of so yeah as far as i know like we didn't uh we didn't piss off any any watergate heads but when you were doing like a, a piece every two weeks and kind of dropping in, you must piss people off. Yeah. Or just like I would make, I was constantly scared of making mistakes because often with, you know, when you're writing about academia or academic research, you know, you, you fail to hedge something in the right way. Right. And it's an error. Yeah. And so, you know, fact checking was always really stressful um, because I felt like I really had to almost, something I would do is I would kind of read the piece to the person on the phone without telling them that that's what I was doing. So I would like, have the piece in front of me and I'd be on the phone with them and I'd say, all right. And so then I kind of go into this thing where I say, and then I would just read the thing on the screen in a conversational tone of voice so that they wouldn't know what I was doing and then try to tell me what to write. You know, because the whole, the reason you don't want to show your piece to someone before you publish it is because then they'll say, change it in these ways. And then it's very awkward and they shouldn't have that ability. But when you're just, when you're having a conversation, it doesn't occur to them to say, you know, actually change this or change this. This is a uh, ongoing theme on this show and talking to a lot of people who've been on the show have a background in fact checking. It's uh -huh. an often a first job and how you are supposed to fact check that a quote is accurate without disclosing what the quote is. No one is totally clear on how <laughs> you're supposed to do that. It's a direction that's given to an entry level fact checker that even experienced fact checkers are like, yeah, that one's tricky. And some people just read quotes. Some people like have weird, like obfuscating synonym techniques. Like, 
Yeah, I did a lot of synonyms. Yeah, and I think it actually gave me some good practice for slow burn because it I was trying to nail that tone of voice that's somewhere in between reading and right. speaking that, that, extemporaneously. That's a great example. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's somewhere between the bar room and the like yeah. TV narration. <laughs> um, yeah. So you did a series of uh, music profiles. Yeah. Um, I guess this is probably after you were at the Boston Globe. Sort of during. Overlapping. Yeah, it overlapped after, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah so I did. Um, did a piece on T-Pain for the New Yorker.com. Yeah. And then I did Drake for the Fader and Ray Shrimmerd for Maxim. Yeah. I feel like you did a Mr. Motherfucking Esquire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For Rolling Stone. Rolling yeah, yeah. yeah. The pieces I really remember were the Ray Shrimmerd one and the Esquire one. I don't know why. Probably because I'm a huge Ray Shrimmerd fan. And I think that was the first feature I read about them. It must have been one of the first like big features about them. I think there had been one other one, but I can't remember where it was. And- there's a consciousness in your music writing. You also wrote this uh, nonfiction. Uh, what do you call a, a nonfiction novella? A li- yeah, a, that's what a, I, that's what I called it. A little nonfiction. I uh, always self-consciously call it short book. <laughs> <laughs> that's a short book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's a book, but like, it's not a big. It's not a big ask. It's not a big like, commitment. Like, yeah. yeah <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not asking that much of you. If you want to, uh, about Juicebox, who is a rapper who. Grew up near you or played shows near you growing yeah, up? Yeah, he grew up in Milwaukee. I was uh, or outside of Milwaukee, and I grew up uh, outside of Chicago. There's a consciousness across a lot of your music writing about how the music business and also the media apparatus that goes along with it um, really can direct the narrative in an artist and in some ways get in their head to the point that it like strongly influences the art that they're making and, and this manifests in different ways and the race remembered profile you talk about how race remembered despite having like huge singles and being really like in my opinion very influential over the music that's been made in the last three years kind of have this reputation as like airheaded uh, party boys yep and like literally kid i mean they're you know at the time you were writing the profile basically kids like, yeah, I think they look a little younger than they are. They but... look they look young, which exacerbates it. But yeah. they were, you know, late teens when they when their first singles I think came that's out. Right. I think. Yeah. yeah. So you also write about like Mr. Motherfucking Esquire and this like sort of what happens when I'm dating myself here because this doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> but when the music blogs like <laughs> jump on uh, a single and kind of make you a 21st century one hit wonder. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that because I think a lot of music writing kind of like acts like we're not supposed to break the fourth wall and we're supposed to talk about this like it's a real person not like a projection of the music industry but in trying to put together those profiles like like you're going to Ray Sremmerd how long like how long do you get with them to hang out so I flew to LA after having spoken to their publicist and was told basically to like call once I landed and figure out what they were doing that day and I had no guarantee that they'd be doing anything interesting, and I understood that I would have some amount of time to interview them, but I also like was hoping that I would get to spend some time with them in the studio or whatever. Yeah. But when I called the publicist, when I got my rental car, he was like, yeah, I think they might just be chilling at the house today, so maybe you want to go to your hotel and stand by. And I was like, no, that's not really going to work. Like, like <laughs> I, I'm here for one day. Like, I got to I gotta do this now. Yeah. And then he was like, all right, let me, let me call you back. And then he calls me back like 20 minutes later. He's like, actually... They're having a huge pool party. You should head over. <laughs> and so I got there, and uh, the party hadn't started yet. But yeah, you know, within an hour or two, there was just like a line at the bottom of their gate. Uh, you know, with 
lots of women and their friends all hanging out in the pool and drinking and smoking weed. And it was a total scene. And, yeah. you know, it felt very lucky. I don't know. I think they I don't think they threw the party for my benefit, but they might as well have because, yeah. it was, you know, it's sort of they do have that reputation that you just alluded to. And so they were living up to that reputation. Yes. <laughs> by, like taking shots, you know, with a bunch of their friends and cannonballing off of their balcony. But um, we had like really uh, kind of in-depth, soulful conversations uh, poolside where, where they made it clear how deliberately they make their music and how you know, how much control they have over what they're producing and how seriously they take originality and how motivated they are to make stuff that sounds and feels new. And what do you like, what do you try to soak in in a situation like that? I mean, that one's like kind of a, like too easy almost. The vibe, man. Yeah. But like, (laughs) yeah, you're like, people are drinking and smoking weed. Like what, like what details capture you in a situation? A little snippets of conversation. Mm. Um, Like I was standing with Mike Will made it their producer and sort of impresario. And he was talking to like a security guard who had been in charge of the door. And he said, I think it's time for a re-rack or something along those lines. And a re-rack, as I understood that term was basically a reference to beer pong, right? When you, when you have to adjust your cups so yeah. that they're in the right shape. I'm sure there's another usage for it. But in this case, I was pretty sure he meant like, we need to get some new girls in here. <laughs> and so that was like a real, you know, revealing moment. Like this is how these parties work. Yeah. Um, there's like a line of girls out the door and, or, you know, standing at the gate downstairs and someone decides when it's time to let them in and let other ones out. That's it strikes me that right. sometimes like a story like Ray Sremert's, the most interesting time to write a story about them would have been when they were like sleeping on Mike Will made its couch and were like unknown teenagers who were like grinding for two years trying to make music that like was of the level that could take them somewhere and that yeah. he approved of. But it's like you don't you don't get to write the feature then. You write the feature when they're peaking, which is in some ways like the story is already pretty well known. And there's like, like, how do you like find sort of fresh ground when you're kind of a latecomer in a yeah. way? Well, so I haven't done any music profiles in a while. Um, there was so recently I was uh, a friend of mine played me a song by this girl from Baltimore named Laura Chalk. And um, she had this perfect song that there were like no views on, no views for on YouTube. And it totally grabbed me and it grabbed all our friends. And we just wanted the song to like blow up and it kept not blowing up. I was kind of, I was like started fantasizing about like, it'd be so awesome to do a podcast where you or whatever, a piece. Now I just think about podcasts to do a piece of reporting basically where you embed yourself with her and try to chronicle the ups and downs of being on the verge, you know, being sort of on the cusp of success. And, you know, her story is not even remotely close to over, but I think it might be hard to be too late. Um, well, I mean, this is an interesting thing. Like, as as someone, you're a rare music writer who's written about success and failure. Most people, like, only end up writing music profiles of people who are, like, peaking at the time they're the subject of the profile. And you've written an entire book about a person who didn't make it, unless maybe Juicebox's, like, profile has been raised since that book. But at the time... She's doing well. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Don't take my... I, uh, I'm very frequently wrong about these kinds of things. But that book is a lot about someone that you were like, why isn't this person yeah. a star? I love his music. And you talk a lot about the life of someone who's sort of like clinging to the fringes of the music industry and has had many times where it seemed like it was going to happen and then it like dissipated. Is it more interesting to write at the like 
point of success or failure for you as a writer? I've been, I've gotten a little self-conscious about the frequency with which I seem to gravitate towards the failure narrative. The Mr. Motherfucking Esquire piece you mentioned is sort yeah. of a sad piece about him like trying to break out of this box that, you know, he felt trapped by in, yeah. the, in the wake of his, you know, song becoming popular on rap blogs that white people read. That piece about T-Pain I did for the New Yorker is like about him being heartbroken that people think of him as a joke and yeah. giving the Grammy to uh, Lonely Island for their autotune song that he guessed it on where it's sort of making fun of autotune and not recognizing him. You know, there's a part in that piece where he talked about Kanye, like making fun of him in the studio. You know, it was just like, yeah. it was a sad story. Uh, Juicebox is obviously yeah. like a, a about yeah. failure or being close to failure and trying to decide whether it's time to give up. I feel like there's one other one I did like this. Oh, you know what I'm thinking of? It's it's actually the opposite. So I profiled Migos for the fader. Yeah. Um, and it's weird to think of this as being pre-fame Migos because they were they had already put out Versace and yeah, like they had a bunch of hit singles. It's uh, like a Migos on the first step of a like ten-story staircase. Yes, and they were heating up at that time, and it seemed like everything was. It seemed like they had every reason to be optimistic, and then towards the end of my time with them, and I think I spent like two days with them in their house, Quavo kind of came over to me and, you know, this goes to what you were saying, like about hopefully my pieces being aware of the like interplay between the reporter and the subject. He, and he was clearly conscious of it too. He said, how long do you think we're going to last? Like asking the fader reporter as if he knows, you know, yeah. as if he understands this business better than Quavo does, which I don't, he wanted to know like my expert opinion, like how you think, how long do you think we're going to last? And I ended up using that sort of as a landing spot because it was, it just felt um, relatable to me and it felt poignant. And I remember being like heartbroken when their album didn't do well after that. Like their album kind of flopped. Yeah. And they were, they put out a bunch of mixtapes after that that no one cared about because their album didn't do well. Like it really felt like people had decided their their narrative was on the downswing. And so therefore there was no reason to keep paying attention to them. And then they, you know, had this resurrection. And so it's been really, uh, it's been really exciting to watch and to imagine whether Quavo has any more doubts about how long they're going to last. In that Mr. Motherfucking Esquire piece, I don't, this is like the most that anyone's talked about Mr. Motherfucking Esquire in like five, I, I don't know if he's still doing it. Like, I don't, I don't uh, shouts to him. Yeah. Uh, he says something, I thought it was like a good detail. He was like, I don't want to be Akinyeli. Like, I don't want to be the like, Basically, I don't want to be like a novelty yeah. uh, figure. And when you write a profile of someone, anyone in any field, like in some ways you're trying to take a, a person who's one dimensional and make them three dimensional and, and find that like who that person really is. In these cases, when you were like writing these profiles and also this pertains to slow burn, like where like, like a lot of these people are dead in slow burn. Like a lot of the most important people in slow burn are dead. Yeah. When you're trying to bring to life these people, like what kinds of details do you look for in people? With slow burn, the way to bring to life people who are dead was through audio and like how they talk, because you can hear so much in how someone talks. Um, with print, I've very rarely had success like characterizing someone vividly by noting what they're wearing or what they have in their house, even. So I think anecdotes are like the only kind of coin of the realm. And so, yeah, I mean, capturing people's reactions to you, maybe, you know, that's a way to 
that's a way to capture someone. I mean, there's this interview that I just did for the second season of Slow Burn about Clinton. It was with a prosecutor, a former prosecutor who worked for the star team. Yeah. And we had this really intense interview where I was asking him questions and he was he was really going through something, answering them. And so I'm 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 hoping to capture that in, in the show. Um I don't know if I'll succeed, but you know, that sort of texture of his reaction to me is sort of what I think will either make him come to life or not. In doing another season, like, did you know that this was like, if I had another season, I'd do X or Y, or like, was there a lot of possible topics? No, we talked about a bunch of different things. I, I, um, I was initially resistant to doing Clinton because it seemed like so obvious, like such an obvious second move. Yeah, it was like the biggest presidential scandal and the second biggest exactly. presidential scandal. Yeah, and um, I got over that real pretty quickly because I I just started reading about it and I was floored by it enough details that I had no awareness of that yeah. gave me that Martha Mitchell feeling like, oh, there is so much here that's not in the, you know, sort of crude outline that all of us carry around in our heads. And um, it made me realize, like, the reason it seems obvious is that it's obviously a good idea for a second season. But I'd like to, you know, in the future, I want Slow Burn to go beyond impeachment scandals because there are only so many of those. Uh, you, uh, you might have a third one. <laughs> You're not the first person to make that joke. I mean, was that actually part of your consciousness that like, what if like some Trump news like jumps out in front of us here and like we can't kind of like stick our course because of that? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, even if Trump got impeached or something, I don't think we would make a slow burn about it because I think yeah. part of what makes it fun to me is kind of excavating forgotten stuff and excavating things that for circumstantial reasons, didn't get passed down sort of in the public consciousness. With Trump, like, it's all just too recent, I think. I did have this thought going into season two that, huh, we're not going to be able to, like, lean on the parallels as a sort of a subtext, you know, yeah. the way we did. No, it's a, it's a very, one. like, big dimension to the way that the storytelling is done. Yeah, I realize it's very central to the reason people, to people's enjoyment of season one. Yeah, parallels. sure. So I was like, huh, what, what are we going to have instead? And then, like, the Stormy Daniels thing kind of takes off. Suddenly, the special prosecutor has to decide whether it's in his jurisdiction. And I'm like, okay, we have some parallels. It's going to be fine. <laughs> what do you think the challenge is about of doing this story that, I mean, I, know, I don't know how deep you are into the season two. And if there's stuff you don't want to talk about, just say, like, this is secret. But, like, this is more recent. Most of the people are still alive. Yep. And your essential premise, at least for me, in slow, the first season of Slow Burn was... This is the story you don't know about Watergate. And it's like, I was alive during this this one. I think I do know the story. Um, like, how does that change the the stakes of doing history um, in, in a different time period like this? So I think the main difference between these two stories is that Nixon's legacy is so settled. Like, there's not a lot of debate about whether he deserved to be ousted uh, yeah, people pretty much agree that he did. With Clinton, you know, his legacy is far more, I think, unsettled, and I think people are thinking through it now uh, in new ways for obvious reasons. Yeah, and I think not only not only do different people have different views of Clinton and his presidency, I think there are plenty of people who don't know what to think, and there are plenty of people who think who think one thing and feel a different thing. You know, yeah. um, people are conflicted about him, and yeah. Uh, I think inevitably that means that uh, the stakes of portraying him a certain way are higher. So, you know, my hope is that we will capture that ambivalence. We will capture that 
sense of confusion that people feel. Um, well, thank you so much for this interview. Thanks it's for having great. me. I uh, look forward to uh, season two. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. Thanks to Leon for coming in. Thank you very much to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our new intern, Tyler McCloskey, and our outgoing intern, Angela Velez. Hey, thanks for everything you've done for the show, Angela. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks to Thermacell and their Radius, the first rechargeable zone mosquito repellent. And thanks to Mubi. Mubi is a curated online cinema. What does that mean? It means they pick great movies, maybe the kind of movies you might only see at a film festival, but also uh, classics, documentaries, uh, acclaimed masterpieces. All this stuff goes up. It's only up for 30 days, which means there's only 30 movies to pick. And you'd think, oh, it's really easy to find a movie to watch in this day and age. Actually, for me, it usually very hard and movie helps make it easier because it's less movies and there's actually a human not some sort of an algorithm that's picked them for me i really have enjoyed it so far it's made my evenings more pleasant so i encourage you to check it out movie m-u-b-i.com slash long form gets you a 30-day trial again movie.com slash long form thanks to movie thanks to everyone out there listening hey are you going to get the t-shirt? You, If you don't get it right now, you probably never will. These t-shirts are going to be uh, collector's items. Uh, they're only available for three weeks. You pre-order them, then we print them. That is it. You can get them at longform.org slash shirt. All right, see you next week.